Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about Joe Biden's first hundred days in office. Our guest is the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Seattle, Washington. Now, Joe Biden is no progressive, and he certainly wasn't Jayapal's favorite candidate in 2020. Senator Bernie Sanders was. Yet she says that Biden is not only listening to progressives, he's incorporating their ideas into his plans. I asked her what letter grade she would give Biden for his first hundred days, and you will hear her response in our conversation that starts right now. Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, from your home in Seattle to my home in Oakland, welcome back to It's All Political. It is so great to be with you, Joe. Before we get started, I wanted to, to, to dive in about uh, 100 days and all that kind of good stuff. I want to talk to you about something else that's happening this week that is related to 100 days. This week, uh, President Biden will be addressing a joint session of Congress. You will be there. And when you're there, you will see a first two women sitting on the dais behind him in the chairs reserved for Vice President and the House Speaker, Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi. When you, when you step back and think about that, um, put it into a larger historical context for us and a personal context too. Well, I'm so excited to be there for that moment. You know, I am the first South Asian American woman ever elected to the House. I was elected the same night Kamala Harris became the first South Asian American woman elected to the Senate. And of course, only the second black woman elected to the Senate. And, uh, and so we have a very special bond from that night. That was the same night that Donald Trump was elected. And so now to be in the position where finally we have um, Joe Biden as president, Kamala Harris as vice president, and then of course, Nancy Pelosi, a woman who has broken many um, ceilings herself uh, behind the president, I think is very, very significant. And it is personal, Joe. You know, I think that the president has made racial equity uh, an important cornerstone of all of his policies. Um, in this moment of multiple crises. Uh, I think Kamala Harris represents so much to all of us as a uh, daughter of two immigrants from very different parts of the world, um, but also uh, you know, bringing together all the multiple identities that we carry and recognizing that representation is so important even in the highest levels of the land, the highest offices of the land. So it's gonna be a great night. I'm headed there after our podcast, actually, and uh, <laughs> looking forward to being in the chamber um, and and privileged and grateful to be uh, able to be there. And this may be one of the last times we see that tableau. Pelosi has uh, sort of vaguely said uh, that she this may be her last term. Of course, that's very fungible. Do you think this will be her last term? As speaker. I have no way of knowing that. Um, you know how people say things and, and then change their minds. And uh, I think you all in California probably have a better sense of that. Uh, she certainly um, has, you know, has really embraced a legacy making agenda in this Congress. I will say that, um, you know, things like the child tax credit. Um, she really wants to get action on climate change. She really wants to she is very committed to passing the $15 minimum wage. You know, I worked very closely with her to include that in the House bill um, in, it, it, during the rescue plan. It didn't make it into the Senate, but she was clearer than I've ever heard her on how urgent it is to, to pass 15. So 
HR1, she's been a real champion. So, you know, I think she is looking at this session, whether it's her last or not, I can't say, but she is looking at this as a crucial moment and perhaps a legacy making moment for her. Mm, interesting. So there's an, an extra urgency there. Um, President Biden, as we say, is about to mark his 100th day as office. What letter grade would you, as the chair of the Progressive Caucus, give him? I would give him an A so far um, because, uh, you know, I really think he's done a phenomenal job early, but I just need to say it's 100 days in. Um, you know, he has mm. he has done so many of the things that we wanted him to do, executive orders. He's been, you know, he sent over a bold day one immigration bill. We had a bit of a screw up with the refugee cap, but they're going to fix that. They responded to that immediately. Um, and I believe that will be fixed uh, within the next couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, and I think that the, the, the messages and the framing, whether it was on the American Rescue Plan and even this next jobs package, jobs and families package, you know, his framing is the problem is not that we go too big. The problem is that we go too small. That is the same framing that the progressive movement and the progressive caucus has been using for for years. Um, you know, on climate, he proposed some really bold climate uh, pro uh, proposals and goals last week. Um, and I think the the you know, the additionally, the whole piece of these investments pay for themselves is a very big turn away from neoliberalism, the idea that government can't do anything, the idea that we shouldn't spend too much. I mean, those ideas on a broad level are being framed for us, the turn away from them uh, is being framed by the president of the United States, the person with the biggest microphone um, and somebody who frankly probably can say a lot of things that progressives would not, would get criticized for, but when it comes out of Joe Biden's mouth, um, it, it is received differently. So I would give him an A so far, but I just have to say it's early. And, you know, we can, we have to keep up the momentum. This jobs and families package, we believe should be one package. We believe it needs to be much bolder than, um, than even the investments that were proposed. Um, we are really looking at some key areas including healthcare and lowering the Medicare eligibility age, a number of other pieces. And then immigration, you know, I have, I am concerned about how we move forward on any of these priorities, unless we are willing to either overrule the parliamentarian, a lesser option in my view, um, or reform the filibuster, which I think is the thing that has to happen. And Joe Biden is going to have to get behind that if he wants to deliver for the people. All right, let's, let's, break down a couple of these things here. Uh, first of all, I wanted to, to just a, a second on where, where do you think the turnaround was for Joe Biden on this? This was not the Joe Biden we saw in the early days of the campaign. Was it, was it, uh, the unity uh, group that uh, you're a part of with between when you had the, uh, supporters of Bernie Sanders, supporters of Joe Biden get together after he won the nomination or actually I believe it was before, uh, officially accepted it and got together and kind of hashed out their differences, uh, reached some sort of, uh, uh, you know, pact there, or, or was it somewhere else? I, I think it's really been a couple of things. First of all, I do think that the progressive movement writ large has been a critical part of Biden's transition um, to, to being the progressive that he is, you know, 
Um, and, and that is, I think, when he saw the energy on these critical issues, you know, whether it was Black Lives Matter or 15, and he saw that translate into votes. I mean, this is really, really important, right? The, the states that we won, um, like Georgia, like Arizona, but also the turnout of Black, Brown, Indigenous, working people and young people in critical states like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, these, he, he saw that and he understands politics. I mean, Joe Biden is a creature of politics. And yes. I think he really understood, oh my gosh, this, this is what could happen when people take government seriously and democracy um, seriously enough to believe that a change is possible. And so I think he does understand that that is a fragile proposition right now. We still have to show people that government can matter. So I think that's one big piece of it is the progressive movement works and works and works behind the scenes and pushes for things. And we sometimes get criticized for it, but we create these tipping point moments. And, and that is part of what happened. But the other part is the, the crises. I mean, I just think that the economic crisis, the racial justice crisis, um, you know, and the health crisis that we face was so, these crises are so enormous of a scale that we just have not seen. And the devastation of over 550,000 deaths and, you know, unemployment claims of a, a, almost a million unemployment claims a week for a, almost a year straight. Um, that was crisis of devastating proportion. And then you can't, you have to be asleep to not see the racial justice um, inequity or the racial inequities across this country and the murder of black men day after and, and black people day after day after day. And so I think that combination made him realize he's got a legacy making moment as well. We were talking about Nancy Pelosi more than anybody. Joe Biden, this is his last hurrah as president. And he has the opportunity to be like FDR and better and, you know, even do more in this moment of deep, deep need for the country. And then maybe the very last thing is about Joe Biden himself. I mean, I, you know, obviously haven't agreed with him on, on everything or there are many places where we depart in terms of what we think is right for the country, but he is a deeply compassionate person and he knows tragedy. And I think that the tragedy that the American people are facing, family after family, black, brown, indigenous, but also white working class folks that Joe Biden knows very well and has connected with over the years very well. Um, I think he is somebody that can relate to people in this moment of tragedy and he feels it deeply. And so to wake up every morning to a president who I genuinely believe is deeply compassionate is a huge change and something that maybe has also moved him to feel like, OK, I got to own these problems. I'm the president. I got to right. provide right. a solution. And you guys have been in touch. Uh, how, how much what kind of regular touch are you in? He, he's, he is listening, as you alluded to. But are, are you guys in regular touch as you pick up the phone and say, hey, uh, what do you think about this? Or, or or do you pick up the phone and say, Mr. President, hey, you're a little bit off on that? No, he he really, he's he's called me once since he became president. That was after the American Rescue Plan 
we're going to have him talk to the Progressive Caucus. He wanted to have uh, members of the caucus come to the White House, which we're working on now. Um, but really, I'm in touch with a lot of the other people at the White House. But that is also recognized that that is also critically important. That was not something the Obama administration did um, really? very much. Um, you know, I was an activist on the outside at the time, not a member of Congress. So I can't speak to what the the members of Congress dealt with. But I uh, but I have heard that President Biden's White House takes outreach to members of Congress and to the outside movement very, very seriously compared to others in the past. And so wow. um, I think that, you know, we have, I, I feel like I have a lot of access and I know that our movement partners feel like they have a lot of access to the highest levels of the White House. And I don't, um, two things, I don't ever confuse access with results. You know, they are two different things. You can have access and no results. And that to me is, is not beneficial at all. It doesn't help me at all to be able to say I talk to the president or I talk to the chief of staff if I'm not getting what I'm pushing for. Um, but it is an important part of getting your priorities in early. Um, and then the second is that, um, you know, I think the reason it has felt good is because so many of our priorities are being listened to. So much of the framing is being listened to. And so I, I think the White House has been very intentional about their outreach um, and about really bringing us in both as members of Congress, but also, um, you know, as uh, as the Progressive Caucus. They've, they've really leaned into the Progressive Caucus. We will have more of our conversation with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal after this short break. And now here's more of our conversation with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Let's talk about a couple of things that, that uh, specifics on your on your agenda. Um, I, I want to touch base with something you alluded to uh, earlier, where you said that you would like to have uh, the infrastructure bill as one. And uh, right now, uh, folks like uh, more moderate members of the caucus, Chris Coons, who is a, sort of a uh, he has an ear of, of his fellow uh, Delawarean, is that a word? Uh, Joe Biden and uh, Joe Manchin said that they think it should be split up. One part, two trillion that is just dedicated to roads and bridges that they think they can peel off a couple of Republican votes in the Senate. Uh, the second part, uh, the, the the Families Act, uh, uh, maybe worth about 1.7 trillion, uh, should be a second thing. Why should that be one massive thing? Why do you think that would be easier to get through the Senate in one massive bill as opposed to two? We we just don't have the time. You know, each of these bills takes an enormous amount of time to pass. And um, we, first of all, don't know for sure that two reconciliation bills would be something that really could move forward. I mean, the parliamentarian's ruling isn't definitive in terms of how it lays it out. But more importantly, it's time. You know, th this is th this agenda is urgent. And I think Dick Durbin um, said this this morning on Twitter. You know, we don't have a lot of time on the calendar. The sooner the better. This is his quote. Um, Keep everything together and move it in a package that works. And so I think that is our view is we got to keep it all together. But also, you know, just from a policy standpoint, let me just make the point that if we pass an, uh, an infrastructure bill, which is supposedly the jobs bill, but we haven't provided childcare 
for families to be actually be able to go back to work. We haven't provided, um, you know, the free college that is going to help people get trained for the work that we're creating. We're going to end up in a situation where we're prioritizing those infrastructure jobs, which hopefully are going to be good green union jobs, but we're prioritizing those going to a much narrower workforce that often is not going to include women who have been really pushed out of the workforce by the pandemic and often is not going to include black, brown and indigenous folks who couldn't afford college until now and desperately need the free college proposals that the president is putting forward in the American Families Plan. Um, and then, you know, on healthcare, this is urgent that we reduce pharmaceutical drug prices and get people able to get the drugs that they need at the cost that every other person in a developed country pays for them. And it's urgent that we look that we expand healthcare coverage by lowering the Medicare eligibility age and including dental vision and hearing. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We've got to do this. And so to me, you really can't separate these two. They are part and parcel of having an economy that works for all. Yeah. You, you, the other day you talked about, well, you alluded a couple of times now to your you did want to uh, expand Medicare by lowering the eligibility age and and, and include Medicare benefits, uh, power Medicare to negotiate drug prices for all Americans. That's got about eighty uh, Democrats signed on, and you may have gotten a couple more in the last couple of days. Most at ninety now. Ninety okay. now. Um, this sounds like uh, sort of a baby step to Medicare for all, and you you've again introduced Medicare for all measure in the House. There's rising support for it. The pandemic, as, as you said, has showed us the, all the fatal flaws in our for-profit uh, healthcare system. People who kept their jobs, kept their insurance. People who lost their jobs often lost their employer-based insurance. You've got more than half the Democrats in the House to sign on your bill, plus the chairs of five of the six committees. Um, Fifteen. I'm sorry? Fifteen. Oh, well, total 15 chairs, but yes, 15 five chairs, yeah, five, relevant. but five, yeah. the, the route that the bill has to go, you got almost all the committees. Pelosi controls all that she can see. <laughs> what do you want Speaker Pelosi to do when it comes to Medicare for all? Well, look, it's not a, a surprise um, to anybody that Speaker Pelosi is invested in the Affordable Care Act. Last year, when I was negotiating for the hearings in the House, she had a phrase that was let other versions exist, the love principle. Um, and so she, while she didn't endorse Medicare for all, she understood that this was a conversation that the country was going to have, whether she wanted it to happen or not. And she did work with me to get those hearings in the House and to have the legislative conversation. Now, I've continued to build on that where we had to you know, fight last year for the hearings. This year, we've already got commitments from several committees to hold hearings. We, while last cycle, we ended up with half of the Democratic caucus. This cycle, we start with over half of the Democratic caucus as original co-sponsors, not coming on later, which of course the work always goes on. But, you know, we have a president who doesn't, our, our, our Medicare for all candidate for president did not win. We have a president who explicitly campaigned not on Medicare for all. So I understand the frustration that people have and they, you know, they want us to just put up the bill. Uh, there are some people on the left who want us to just put up the bill um, and I guess let it fail, which is what would happen. Um, but I know who the Medicare for all people are not <laughs> because they're the people that won't sign onto the bill. So I'm not really sure what 
putting up a bill and having it fail will get for us. So Bernie Sanders and I have been collaborating very closely, going back to the unity task force that you mentioned, um, and all the way to today, I talk to him a couple times a week often, um, to really put together a strategy that gets some of these foundational elements of Medicare for all in. Now we've already gotten long-term care into the president's jobs package, his infrastructure package. I hope people understand what an enormous achievement that is and how that agreement for 400 billion in long-term care services came from the unity task force. That is what we put forward in the unity task force and then continued the pressure and SEIU obviously was very important in that. And it got included into the jobs package. So long-term care was not even in a bill until I introduced it into my Medicare for all bill in the house. So that's a huge accomplishment already. Foundational piece, we're going to address long-term care. Second foundational piece, we want to address pharmaceutical drug pricing. Um, that is something we're pushing for right now in this bill. And pharma is coming out big against it. And I'm worried about their influence on the White House and members of Congress. We need to do this. Um, and then we need to take the savings and do foundational piece number three, which is lower the Medicare eligibility age and expand benefits. That will bring in tens of millions of people. If we lowered it to, to 60, it would bring in, I think, 23 million people. If we lowered it to 55, it would bring in more like 45 million people. And so that is a really important foundational piece about getting this done. So that's three major foundational pieces and expanding benefits to include dental vision and hearing. Huge, 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 huge. Would he, where would that, would, do you that. see that tucking that into to one of the infrastructure bills or is that going to be on its own? No, I really want this to be in the next package in the jobs and families package that we pass. And I've spoken to the speaker about it. The speaker wants to, is very committed to including pharmaceutical drug pricing um, and then using the savings to expand affordable care subsidies, which by the way, the eight and a half percent, no American would pay more than eight and a half percent of income um, for their, for their health care. So the subsidies to ensure that that was something also that we got into the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force because at least it expands healthcare for people um, and makes it more affordable. And so we're supportive of that. But what I've said to the speaker is that can't be the only thing. We also need, there's plenty of drug pricing savings to use to do both that and Medicare eligibility. And I would just point out that that letter the reason that letter is so unusual and so consequential, um, the letter that you just mentioned that we have almost 90 people on, is because it includes some of the most vulnerable Democrats in um, the House. So it includes Jared Golden is one of the people who's leading it. He's in one of the top vulnerable districts. Um, Connor Lamb is also co-leading it. Um, he's also in one of the top vulnerable districts. Cindy Axney in Iowa is in a top vulnerable district. Susan Wilde in Pennsylvania. It includes about a dozen, I'm not sure how many now, but about a dozen of the most vulnerable members in the House. So this is a frontliner progressive caucus um, combined letter, and we're really proud of that. What is the uh, philosophy that you have with the progressive caucus uh, it's sort of a, it, when you have a friendly president, you haven't had a pre friendly president in four years. And how do you compare it with the Freedom Caucus, the the, the conservative uh, group on the 
uh, within the Republican uh, Party that was uh, kind of a you know a uh, pain in the ass basically to, uh, the, to to Trump in some ways and and certainly to uh, uh, and to, to to governing they they were you know kind of stuck their foot in the ground in a couple of things. How do you how do you, what's your philosophy on as in terms yeah. of how, what the Progressive Caucus should be when it comes to Joe Biden? A couple of years ago, when I was asked this question, I would say, well, the Freedom Caucus is the caucus of no, and the Progressive Caucus is the caucus of yes. But today, when you ask me that question, I say, what exactly has the Freedom Caucus achieved that we would want to even strive in any way to be like the Freedom Caucus? The Freedom Caucus lost the House, the Senate, and the presidency. The Freedom Caucus is supporting insurrectionists and seditionists. The Freedom Caucus refuses to accept the legitimate uh, results of the election. And so I just don't see any reason why we would style ourselves in any way according to the Freedom Caucus. But, you know, I think at, at my philosophy is that we are pushing for the boldest, most progressive um, result that we can get. We have uh, reformed the rules of the caucus substantially so that we are able to move more nimbly and early with our priorities. There is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, and I get that that isn't always exciting to people or even known to people, um, you know, as, as the fireworks of perhaps the Freedom Caucus, but it allows us to actually get into a bill early on what we want. Isn't that the best result? Now, at the same time, I reserve the right at any moment to um, also use the power that we have to, um, you know, to decide that we, we're not going to vote for a bill. Um, but we have to just understand that the House margins are so slim that any couple of members can do that. And at the end of the day, we got to look at the whole bill and determine whether or not it makes sense to, to block the legislation. And we have really involved conversations about that with all the members of the caucus, all the way from our most liberal members, which I count myself as one of those, to the, the more conservative members. And I've, I'm really proud that we've been able to hang together and still push and get success on many of our priorities. What do you say to someone like, uh, you know, you're, we're talking about the $15 an hour uh, minimum wage President uh, uh, just yesterday said he would have it for for he signed an executive order to make it uh, mandatory for federal employees. But how do you explain to someone like Joe Manchin? You know, right? we always we always talk about Joe Manchin. You know, that's going to fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage is huge in West Virginia. The the minimum wage there is eight dollars and seventy five cents an hour. How do you swing someone like that? Uh, in a state where they need to raise the minimum wage, uh, to but to still to to nearly double, to vote for nearly doubling it in his in his state. Well, obviously the movement has been trying to do that. I mean, I did a town hall with some amazing workers from West Virginia, healthcare workers, who talked about you know just the struggles that they're having, and his state would stand to benefit so much from raising the minimum wage. And I I really am frustrated by you know, the, the idea that politicians, including Senator Manchin, with respect, um, would hang on to the idea that 15 is too high when they can see in their own states the damage that um, is being done to people with our, with our uh, terrible uh, minimum wage. And 11 is not enough, 12 is not enough. Look, Joe, we started, the fast food workers started this movement back in 2012 for the fight for 15. 
In Seattle, we became the first city to pass a $15 minimum wage in 2014. So we are now almost a decade later, and we're still talking about 15. 15 isn't even enough for many of us, your city, my city. It's really a floor, not a ceiling. But let's lift the floor for people across this country and get to 15. So with Joe Manchin, you know, obviously the groups are, the grassroots groups are trying to do all they can to increase the voices of people. But at the end of the day, it may be just that the White House has to use all the tools in its toolbox and we have to attach it to legislation that has many other things that perhaps the senator would like to see passed. And we've just got to push it and get there because this is ridiculous. I mean, we cannot go back to voters and say, oh, I'm sorry, there were Democrats who didn't want to pass the $15 minimum wage when in Florida, a supermajority of voters voted for the $15 minimum wage and voted for Donald Trump, a majority voted for Donald Trump as president. So this is not anymore a democratic thing. It's not a progressive thing. It's a worker justice piece of the American dream and really having any um, legitimacy to the idea that there is an American dream at all that people can access. You'll be speaking, uh, I want to wrap up, you, you, you're speaking at the California Democratic Party uh, convention uh, this weekend, virtually, of course. Uh, everybody's going to be virtual. Uh, what, do, what do you say to to the party right now? We have a, a, a very likely recall of uh, the recall will be on the ballot, very likely, against uh, Gavin Newsom. Um, uh, our states are very similar in many ways. Uh, what per, And what perspective will you be giving them from uh, the a national pro- uh, progressive leader like yourself? My perspective is go big, go bold, go fast. We've got to get these things done. We've got to respond to the people. People should have no question in their mind that Democrats are for the people, that we put the average person out there in, in front, um, that we are taking care of families, that we're helping people to get childcare and paid leave, and we're also helping people to get good union jobs, that we are transitioning to a green, clean economy and taking on climate change, that we're you know, addressing immigration reform. These are not intractable positions that we're in. They can be fixed. We created them in many ways. Um, this is a creation of Democratic and Republican administrations, frankly, and now we've got to fix it. And that is my perspective. We can fix it. Um, we can be bold. Progressive ideas are populist and they are necessary. Congresswoman, I hope you finish your packing on time. You're heading out on a plane right <laughs> after this to, uh, as you said, to, uh, to Washington for the for the big address. Thank you for, again, being on uh, It's All Political. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Jayapal for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank the King Webby-nominated producer King Kaufman for producing today's episode. And a shout-out for our great theme music, as always, that's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and produced by Randy Clark and Song. And remember, no matter if you're a progressive or a neoliberal or a liberal, or you just don't give a crap, it's all political.